0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, May 31st. I'm Marco Werman. A BBC reporter went undercover inside Syria. He says last week's massacre in Hula... Wasn't a one off incident.
1: When we first heard about people's throats being slit, it sounded like a propaganda story or or a wild tale, but the evidence is incontrovertible. There have been many, many killings like this.
0: We'll hear the latest on Syria's slide towards civil war. Also on the program, why protecting kids from too much soda is easier in other countries.
2: They're not as pushed around by the food companies as we are in the United States.
3: The R.I.'s The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The conflict in Syria could escalate dramatically in the next few days. Some rebel commanders inside Syria issued an ultimatum today that gave the Syrian government until tomorrow to fully abide by the terms of the United Nations-backed ceasefire plan. If not, the rebels said they will abandon the truce. A full-blown civil war in Syria would signal the failure of international diplomatic attempts to resolve the crisis. Today, U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton seemed to blame Syria's main ally, Russia, for the lack of progress.
4: The Russians keep telling us they uh, want to do everything they can to avoid a civil war because they believe that the uh, violence would be uh, catastrophic. Uh, They often, in their conversations with me, Uh, liken it to the equivalent of a very large Lebanese civil war, and they're uh, just vociferous in their uh, claim that uh, they are providing a stabilizing uh, influence. I reject that. I think they are, in effect, uh, propping up the regime uh, at a time when we should be working on a political transition.
0: Secretary of State Clinton speaking earlier today in Denmark. The BBC's Paul Wood has just returned from three weeks of undercover reporting in Syria. He visited the region around Homs and spoke to members of the rebel Free Syrian Army about the conflict.
1: I have two general impressions. The first is that the rebel fighters, the Free Army, are just barely hanging on. They are under tremendous pressure and everywhere you go. And we went around Homs, around a town called Khosr, and to a town called Rastan, which is near Hula, the the town where the massacre took place. Everywhere you go, there are a lot of uh, regime forces out, Uh, there is a lot of movement, people spend a lot of time hiding in safe houses. These are very, very difficult days for the armed opposition. The other impression is that we are closer now than we have ever been to an all-out sectarian civil war. Homs and surrounding countryside is not the whole country, it is true, and the situation there is very different from, say, the suburbs of Damascus. But over eight months now of travelling to this area, I always ask people, will there be a sectarian civil war here? And the answer was always, no, we've never had these kind of animosities here. It is not um, the, uh, the tradition in Syria. This time I remember one particular conversation with one activist who always said there will never be a civil war here. And this time he said not only would there be a civil war, but that the civil war had already started.
0: Paul Wood was also in the area near Hula, the town where more than 100 civilians were massacred last week, and heard accounts of what happened there. We don't know anything for certain, I should stress that, but people
1: who were killed are largely from one extended family who I believe may be related to a very senior Free Army commander in that area. There was apparently a couple of attacks on checkpoints uh, before the massacre, and they decided to take revenge against the wider, extended family of one of the senior Free Army commanders in the area. Well, the important thing to understand about Hula is that it is exceptional in scale, but not in nature. We, over many months, have been hearing about the army first shelling a place and then paramilitaries, militias called Shabiha, going in and committing atrocities. When we first heard about people's throats being slit, slaughtered like sheep, as, as people always told us, um, we were very reluctant to believe it. It sounded like... A propaganda story or, or a wild tale but the evidence is incontrovertible there have been many many killings like this what is interesting uh, so far is that it is not a simple story of village against village and neighbour against neighbour, there have been acts of revenge on both sides but they have been directed at individual families the interesting line which has not yet been crossed is whether it will just turn into Shiites and Alawites against Sunnis, at the moment it is almost like some kind of Sicilian based mafia and revenge uh, revenge killings. But we're, we're just a hair's breadth from that now. It really is very close, I think.
0: The BBC's Paul Wood now back in Beirut after three weeks of undercover reporting inside Syria. We turn now to Robert Malley. He's MIDI's Programme Director for the International Crisis Group, a non committed to preventing and resolving conflict.
5: I would say it's remarkable the degree to which Syrian society up to this point has resisted the kind of sectarian civil war that seems to be just around the corner. And the question is whether what happened in Hula, the massacres there, could trigger the kind, this could be a tipping point towards a more generalized civil war, which, again, we haven't really seen. We haven't seen massacres of Alawite villagers, for example. Um, But that's the risk. And the more this lasts, the more likely it will be, and the harder it will be to, to reach a diplomatic solution, and the more likely that you're going to see the kinds of developments that people are fearing, regional spillover, uh, but also growing uh, weight of the more Islamist jihadist strain of the, of, the op- of the armed opposition. so a lot of the things that people fear are more likely to happen uh, the longer it lasts.
0: What do you think Robert would military intervention help?
5: the first question is is not only will it help in uh, the civil wars whether there's, a, there's the willingness on the part of the international community uh, to do so and that really depends on, on their own assessment. Of the risks involved and of the of what it would actually produce, obviously a number of countries would be interested in getting rid of the current regime, but they also are somewhat uh, petrified at the notion of jumping into another Middle East conf- conflict, right. of perhaps exacerbating uh, the, the situation in Syria, of provoking greater outside interference and greater spillover effect uh, from Syria. So I think any you know any. Anyone who's thinking, looking at Syria, is looking at all these options, including the military option. But at this point, I have not seen, and I don't think that uh, leaders in in, in Washington or elsewhere have seen a plan that, that reassures them in terms of answers to those questions. How do you get in? What are the costs? What are the consequences in terms of perhaps escalating conflict in Syria? What are the costs for the region? And then perhaps most important of all, how do you get out? It doesn't mean that it won't happen, but it means that before those questions get credible answers, it's hard to imagine at least speaking, for, uh, speaking about the U.S. administration, that they would plunge in.
0: Others have talked about a Yemen option. Uh, explain mm-hmm. that. What is it?
5: I mean, the Yemen option, option doesn't really say much. What it, what it stands for is basically three, three pillars, what, what happened in the case of, of, of Yemen and the transition there. Pillar number one is that it's a coalition of countries, including countries that are historical allies of the regime in question. In the case of Yemen, it was Saudi Arabia, which was allied with President Saleh, that was joining in this international effort. In this case, when people speak of a Yemeni option, they have in mind bringing Russia on board as an ally of the of the Syrian regime. That would be part of this transitional process. That's element number one. Element number two is that at the end of the process, the president, President Saleh in one case, President Assad in this case, if it were to happen, would have to be would have to step down. Right. Element number three is that the basic infrastructure, the structures of the regime, some of the pillars of the regime, stay in place. It's a very gradual, uh, managed transition. And so different countries see different pieces of the Yemeni model that they like. The Russians are attracted to the notion of a managed transition, of one that retains basic elements of the regime. As as is the case today in Yemen, the basic structures of the regime have not changed. The Americans and some others, when they think of the Yemeni option, what they like about it is that for them, the punchline is that Assad has to go. And in their view, he would have to go sooner rather than later.
0: I'm curious to know how much hostility you think the West is breeding in Syria by appearing to do nothing while children in Syria are being stabbed and shot at point blank range.
5: Hard to measure. I mean, there always are conspiracy theories on all sides. And then, and from what we're hearing from some of the people who report to us, who work for us on the ground, there is this feeling that is growing, uh, however illegitimate and unjustified it is, that many in the West, in fact, want President Assad to stay in power. They don't mind that he's weakened because it serves Israel's agenda, but they basically don't want to do anything to overthrow him because better have a weak. Assad, then uncertainty and and, and perhaps uh, an entity that would arise and and, and rebuild Syria. So that is that that's that's there. It's present. It probably is going to be uh, uh, intensified if nothing changes. But it's also inevitable uh, because because conspiracy theories are rife in in the region to a large extent because the people in the region have been the victims of Western conspiracies for so long. So it's not hard for them to imagine that they are victims again.
0: Robert Malley, Middle East Program Director with the International Crisis Group in Washington. Thank you very much. Thank you. New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is proposing a ban on large sodas. The measure would put a 16-ounce limit on sugary drinks sold in the city's restaurants, delis, and movie theaters. If Bloomberg has his way, those bucket-like containers that many people guzzle at the movies or sporting events would be history. Kelly Brownell is a professor at Yale University. He's an obesity expert and a contributor to the HBO documentary The Weight of the Nation. Brownell supports Bloomberg's efforts. He says another option would be to impose an extra tax on soda.
2: Other countries, such as Denmark and France, have put into place taxes on sugared beverages, but they're relatively recent, and it's too early to know what would happen. Uh, We and others have put together data from the United States And we figure that a tax of a penny per ounce on any beverage with added sugar could lead to substantial health care savings. But the soda companies have made it a top priority for them to stop these taxes. And I suspect they'll do exactly the same thing with this New York City portion size proposal.
0: And in Denmark and France where uh, these kinds of uh, things have been tried, uh, how do they stack up in terms of uh, obesity to the United States? Well, obesity
2: in the United States leads the world, so these other countries don't have as much of it. But they have enough to be of concern, and, that's, and they're not as pushed around by the, the food companies as we are in the United States. So that's why they've taken more aggressive action and have these taxes in place. Now, it will take a little time to know whether they work, but the fact that they've been acted, I think, is a very positive move.
0: So America invented Coca-Cola. I imagine culturally it's just much harder here in the United States and other parts around the world to, to deal with this problem. Culturally, it's hard in the U.S.
2: because we're accustomed to these beverages being part of our life, but we can't subtract out the fact that they're marketed so aggressively by this industry. And they aggressively market to kids in particular, and because of that, these intense brand loyalties set in very early in life, and they're hard to change. But just like we were able to turn around the norms on tobacco, I suspect we can do it with these products as well.
0: I'm wondering if there are countries, places around the world who, you know, see the size of a big gulp here in the United States uh, and and are learning from kind of these obesity traps that we have here. You hope that that's the case
2: because a lot of these countries could look at the United States to see what has gone awry and try to prevent those sort of things. Uh, The westernization of native diets would be an example. Large portion sizes, eating in the automobile. Uh, The erosion of a certain number of meals per day, eating late at night, you can go on and on with the list. And these things will sweep these countries because the food industry interests will try to train people to eat just like Americans have eaten so they can get as much product sold as possible. And if the countries see it coming, maybe they can do something in advance, which we fail
0: to do. If the U.S. leads the world in obesity, what are the countries that are kind of second, third, fourth, fifth place?
2: Well, the developed countries such as the UK, Australia, Canada are very high on the list. Um, But what's saddest of all is that the developing countries are are having very high rates of obesity, overwhelm them as well. The health minister of China within the past several years declared that overnutrition and obesity are more significant problems in his country than malnutrition.
0: Whoever thought that they would Mm -hmm. arrive. Kelly Brownell, director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy at Yale. He's been speaking with us from New Haven. Thank you very much, Kelly. Thank you. When I traveled to Japan last year, I noticed that soft drink containers there tend to be modestly sized. And that got me thinking, how much does your diet change when you travel? We'd love to know your experience with serving sizes around the globe. Share your cultural packaging experience with us on our Facebook page or at theworld.org.
3: This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The country with the largest Catholic population in the world
0: isn't as Catholic as it used to be. We're talking about Brazil. The Vatican has been losing ground there for decades as more people turn to evangelical churches or away from religion altogether. A movement called the Charismatic Catholic Renewal appears to be helping the Catholic Church retain followers in Brazil and throughout Latin America. But as Lily Jamali reports from Rio, it's a complicated relationship.
6: To the hundreds of congregants at this Catholic church in Rio, Father Gluson Gomez is a godsend. Just 35, he's a priest with a devout and growing flock, here to watch him deliver a service that's a departure from the usual Sunday Mass. Bom dia. Father Gluson is part of Brazil's charismatic Catholic renewal, the Vatican-approved answer to a steep drop in Catholics here. Surveys show that in 1980, nearly 90 percent of Brazilians identified as Catholic. By 2009, that figure had dropped to just 68 percent. At the same time, Brazil's evangelical following has skyrocketed to just 20 percent of the population. That, combined with a rise in secularism, has caused alarm within the Catholic Church, making it ever more dependent on the highly popular charismatic movement's untraditional approach. Charismatics use many of the methods that helped make evangelical services so popular here in Brazil. The use of music, more audience participation, and an all-around brighter tone. In fact, it's sometimes referred to as evangelical Catholicism, and it's having an impact. 16-year-old Larissa Rodriguez says this church was used to empty pews until two years ago when Father Gluson showed up. This church before the father, basically, they wanted to close. There was nobody here. It didn't have anything. The father came and it got a lot better. Now, mass is packed. Father Glusen isn't shy about touting his record.
1: The community needed a revitalization. That's why I was sent by the bishop, because of my charismatic form of ministry that we've been working on. It made it easier for followers to participate. We were able to make a community in this parish, a more fervent and participatory community.
6: And Brazilians of all ages, including devotee Arthur Machado, find themselves coming back for more week after week.
7: You get excited because the whole congregation likes it It's alive. It becomes more accessible. None of that formal stuff.
6: But some practices have raised eyebrows within Brazil's Catholic establishment. These include speaking in tongues to channel the Holy Spirit and a belief in divine healing. And then there's what some see as crass commercialism. San Paolo-based Marcelo Hosse is the country's most famous Catholic charismatic priest. For more than a decade, Father Hosse has cultivated a multimedia empire, complete with albums, movies, and books, all selling by the millions, plus a heavy online presence. Despite his ability to draw staggeringly large audiences, even Hosse has been embraced only with some reluctance. He's been warned on occasion by members of the Catholic establishment to tamp down the entertainment in his services. Still, Professor Andrew Chestnut of Virginia Commonwealth University says Father Jose and other charismatics are keeping Catholicism alive here, and the Vatican knows it.
7: Many Brazilian bishops are not themselves charismatic, but have come to perceive it as the best way to staunch this massive flow of Catholics into the Pentecostal churches. So from an institutional standpoint, it has been the most strategic thing for the church to do to stop the exodus of Catholics into the Pentecostal churches.
6: Professor Chestnut says the Charismatics' non-traditional approach doesn't demean the Catholic message. He questions the notion that non-European Catholics should practice the faith with norms imposed by Europe. Religion scholar Cecilia Maris of the State University of Rio de Janeiro agrees, saying the charismatic approach might be a better fit for Brazil and is ultimately bringing people back to the Catholic Church. Uh,
8: there is an affinity between the, the enchanted vision of the charismatic and the enchanted
4: culture, Brazilian culture.
8: Also it's a very, um, very lively, very f- happy uh, religious experience. It's very
4: emotional.
6: Father Glusen certainly agrees with that sentiment. He says his sing-along style is an effective vehicle for delivering the Catholic message. After all, he says a charismatic service is still at its core a mass.
1: It brings a liveliness to your faith. It brings a spiritual happiness. You experience
8: the Holy Word more deeply.
6: The Pope's visit to Brazil for next year's World Youth Day Catholic pilgrimage will serve as a test of how far the Vatican's relationship with the Charismatics has evolved. Father Glusen is one of many Charismatic pastors trying to mobilize tens of thousands of volunteers for the event. It's no coincidence that Brazil was the Vatican's pick. It will give Pope Benedict XVI a chance to remind Brazilians of the faith that once wielded so much influence here. No word on whether the pontiff will be swaying in the aisles. For The World, I'm Lily Germali in Rio de Janeiro.
0: You can see charismatic Catholic priest Gluson Gomez speaking in tongues. That video and photo from the charismatic Catholic Renewal Church in Rio are at theworld.org. For today's GeoQuiz, think inaccessible. We're looking for an ancient path off the east coast of England. This path starts at Great Wakering on the coast of Essex, and it ends at Falness, an island separated from the mainland by narrow creeks. Here's the interesting part. When the tide is in, this path is underwater. You can only walk it when the tide is out. So you have to watch closely for those returning waves and for the mud, which can also be dangerous. But if you time it right, it's unforgettable.
9: It proved to be the eeriest, the unearthliest, and the most memorable walk I've
0: taken, and I've taken many walks. We'll hear more from British writer Robert Macfarlane later when we come back with the answer. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, why South Africa's president is the butt of many jokes.
4: Jacob Zuma is a really easy target. He's somebody who a lot of people make fun of, black and white in South Africa. Satirists feel he's fair game.
0: But in the context of post-apartheid South Africa, it's more complicated than that.
3: That and more ahead on the world. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC
0: World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. South Africa has been all a Twitter, literally lots of tweets, about a painting. The painting depicted President Jacob Zuma with his genitals exposed. It was part of a gallery exhibit in Cape Town, but it isn't anymore. The gallery removed the painting yesterday after reaching a sorta-kinda agreement with the African National Congress. The world's Carol Hills has been following the case. Uh, Carol, remind us how this got started and caused such a furor.
4: Well, it all started with an exhibit in a Cape Town gallery by an artist called Brett Murray. He's a satirical artist, and this was satire. And the image, it's a classic kind of propaganda image from the earlier Soviet period of Lenin standing there holding a book and looking regal. And so you have Zuma standing there with his penis exposed.
0: And the African National Congress, the ANC, and President Zuma reacted. Why wouldn't they?
4: They went wild. And not only them, a lot of South Africans did. But the ANC in particular was going to sue the newspaper that published a picture of the painting. They were taking the gallery to court and they wanted to ban the painting. In a space of two weeks, they organized three different protest marches. There was Uh, boycott of the gallery. And then last week, two men entered the gallery and defaced the painting. So then the gallery was shut down for several days and reopened a few days ago. What
0: is at the heart of the controversy, Carol, if you get deeper here? I mean, besides the obviously offensive image of a sitting president shown with his genitals exposed.
4: Well, a lot of it comes down to race, which is a perennial issue in South Africa. The artist, Brett Murray, is white. Uh, The president is black, showing the president exposing his genitals for many south africans recalls the humiliation of the apartheid era in the apartheid era if you weren't carrying your your id and you were black your you passport, could be yeah. you could be strip searched and there's old stereotypes of sort of the oversexed black African. So it plays into all these things, but it also plays into what is the role of freedom of speech right. in the post-apartheid South Africa. So you have journalists, you have cartoonists and artists saying this is about freedom of expression. This is satire. This is what satirists do. Jacob Zuma is a really easy target. He's somebody who a lot of people make fun of, black and white in South Africa. He has multiple wives, multiple mistresses, at least 22 children. So satirists feel he's he's fair game. But there's a sort of dignity issue. And lots of people who would normally criticize Zuma were writing letters to the newspaper that published a picture of the painting and the gallery saying, this is unacceptable, this is horrible, you can't do this. So it really raised these sort of tensions.
0: Right, and obviously made it a very potent issue. So what becomes of the painting now?
4: Well, the agreement that the gallery and the ANC reached yesterday is that the painting is taken down. The gallery has taken it down. Interestingly, the painting had been purchased even before the exhibit opened May 10th by a German art collector. And he says he still wants it, even though it's defaced. The gallery says, yes, we agree to take it down. The ANC says, OK, we won't go after you in court. But the gallery says, you know, we feel kind of beaten up by this. We feel that we were bullied by the ANC. And the ANC is defensive, saying, oh, no, no, we didn't. We didn't come in and take it down ourselves. We didn't prevent anyone from painting. We're just doing what we think is right, and it's around dignity. So it's, it's very tricky.
0: And if there's freedom of speech, we have the right to talk about it. Exactly. You can see the offending painting both before and after it was defaced. Also, Carol Hills has got a slideshow of South African political cartoons that have been responding to the controversy. Those are all at theworld.org. The World's Carol Hills. Thank you so much. Thanks, Marco. A school district in California is in the news after it banned a derogatory term used to demean immigrants from Oaxaca, Mexico. Officials in the city of Oxnard in the Los Angeles area made it illegal to use the term Oaxaquita. The move was prompted by a campaign organized by students and parents in the Oxnard school district. Gaspar Rivera Salgado is a researcher at the UCLA Labor Center. He's written about indigenous Mexican migration. Uh, Explain to us how and why this term Oaxaquita has been used in schools there in Oxnard?
10: Well, this is largely the legacy of racism and prejudice against indigenous people in Mexico that is carried over in the migratory process. We've noticed that in uh, a lot of the kids were using terms such as Oaxaquita or Indito to refer to some of these indigenous youth. This is a reminder of Uh, One of the hidden facts of Mexican immigration, Mexico is really a multicultural, multilingual country. There are 62 indigenous groups in Mexico. The Mexican indigenous population is the largest indigenous uh, population in the entire Americas. But given the fact that Mexico is such a big big country, percentage-wise, it's not as Indian as other um, countries such as Bolivia, Guatemala. We know for a fact within Mexico, there's a very strong sense of Racism and prejudice against this indigenous population. And this is embedded in the culture, in the everyday speak of people.
0: So, were you finding that it was Mexicans using this derogatory term for Mexicans from Oaxaca, or was it kind of everybody?
10: First, largely uh, used by Mexican immigrants themselves against mm. these uh, Oaxacanos, but then uh, spread very fast to other groups. And we have to remind ourselves that this is not. You know, just a bullying practice. This is not a random word that is used to make fun of, you know, of some kids. But actually, it has very racist connotations. It really sort of uh, reproduces this uh, idea that the Indian is uncivilized, barbarous uh, human being. This is the legacy of colonial Mexico. And this is an issue that has not been uh, confronted head on until now this internal introspection about the prejudice and racism within the larger uh, Mexican migrant community.
0: It also happens that 30 percent of the farm workers in California are from Oaxaca. So this epithet also targets class as well as ethnicity.
10: It is true. It's not only, you know, a racist term, but also it reproduces this view that, you know, these Oaxacitas uh, farm workers and, you know, some people say, well, Oaxacitas are you know, used to work hard, bent over. So this fun work is really ideal for them. And also, let's remind ourselves that fun work is among the toughest and worst paid jobs in the United States, and that 30% is a huge percentage of this population. And many times, they do not have other opportunities. And of course, it's a step forward. It's not going to end this racist attitude. I think that uh, there has to be a sustained effort on the part of other uh, Mexican immigrant institutions to really develop cultural sensitivity campaigns to realize that Mexico and Mexican immigrants, you know, come from uh, different cultures and speak different languages.
0: Gaspar, where are you from in Mexico?
10: I'm originally from Oaxaca, uh, Mixteco, and I came to this country about 20 years ago.
0: So this whole issue is very uh, close to your heart, I imagine.
10: It is very close to my heart, and this is something that I've been working with for the past
0: uh, uh, 10 years. I mean, do you see this as a teaching moment? I mean, are the schools and teachers coming forward with creative ideas to teach about indigenous Mexican culture now?
10: And, and I think that's one of the challenges in moving forward. Uh, this policy to ban these uh, racist words now is a step forward. But I think uh, there has to be more leadership development for indigenous people to to really be able to navigate their new circumstances here in the United States. There has to be curriculum to develop this cultural sensitivity among not only teachers, but also among parents. So teachers need to be trained about the diversity within the Mexican community. And also the Mexican community has to embrace this campaign and start, you know, talking about these issues.
0: Gaspar Rivera Salgado is a researcher at the UCLA Labor Center. Gaspar, thanks very much for telling us about this uh, campaign and about the Mexican state of Oaxaca.
10: Thank you, Michael, for having me in your program.
0: British writer Robert McFarlane is a seeker of places on the periphery, and he writes about one such place in the current issue of Granta Magazine. We asked you to name it in our GeoQuiz today. The answer is the Broomway, a three mile route that takes the walker on an ancient path off the southeast coast of England. When the tide is out, the path is visible and walkable. When the tide is in, the broomway is underwater. Robert MacFarlane walked the broomway, and for any of our listeners, Robert, who've taken a walk in an area subject to tides, you don't want to go too far out on the seabed, lest the returning tides catch you, right?
9: Right. So you've got to put your trust in the moon, and you have to put your trust uh, in your own calculations, which are much more likely to be fallible than the moon. So Mm. you do your tide calcs and you work out that once the tide is out and it goes out about two and a half miles over hard sand, then you have several hours in which to make your walk and come back again. The other danger is mud. The broomway exists because of a wide ridge of hard sand that runs offshore and that provides a good walking surface. In fact, you can drive vehicles over it. But the mud is more problematic. So what is this broomway and how long has it been there? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows why it's there. Some people think it's, as it were, the top of a ridge of chalk that rises up and kind of braces the sand there. Nobody knows really how long it's been in use. There's a manorial record from the early medieval period which refers to it. But it joins the mainland on the east coast of England to this big island. I think it's the fifth biggest island in England called Falness. And that was how people got onto and off Falness for centuries. Mm. The mail coaches would run along there and the pedestrians would run along there. But it was dangerous. Right. You had to do those tide calculations each time you wanted to deliver the mail. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there was a pub at Wakering Stairs, which is on the mainland where you join it. And so the, the coach drivers would sit and drink there in the 19th century.
0: And then it really wasn't a path you wanted to be coaching along while drunk. <laughs> and the name Broomway, I understand that it comes from the fact that brooms were literally placed along it to mark the path. Why brooms? Un- unclear, um, but yes, allegedly the the path's width
9: was marked with these brooms. These brooms also offered this is obviously pre GPS, pre handheld compass, even uh, offered a way to navigate it. So you would carry a very long length of thread, and you would attach the thread to the broom, and then you would walk off in what you thought was the direction of the broomway until you met hopefully the next broom, and then and then you would know in what direction you were going. Sorry, actually you'd left the string attached to a stone. And so this was a a very laborious way of ensuring safe passage. How long a walk is it, and how did it go for you? In terms of miles, it's nothing. It's three to four, depending on how you measure it and walk it out. And then, obviously, you need to come back the same way. But it it proved to be the eeriest, the unearthliest, and the most memorable walk I've taken. And I've taken many walks. Um, This was because you are walking on water. The water is only an inch in depth, really, and obviously the sand beneath it But there is a sense of miracle attending your progress at every step. And your own reflection is doubled in the water next to you. You walk soul to soul with your own ghost, as it were. And scale is weird because there's no depth markers or distance markers. Everything is a kind of silver mirror extending in all directions. And it was a hot day and it was a misty day to start with. And all of these factors conspired to create a really powerfully spectral
0: and strange walk. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it could be really mysterious, but also kind of eerily disorienting.
9: Yes. And fortunately, we had handheld compasses, so we knew which way we were going. If you hadn't had those, it would have been very, very strange. Hard to keep your nerve and hard to keep your bearing. And indeed, at the end of the day, we couldn't kind of resist it any longer. And we, we left the broomway and walked directly out to sea and reached about two and a half miles out over these flats, reached a point where you could see these great illusions being bred by the heat and the clouds out where the water met the sand. And indeed, the, you know, the tide times were starting to to look a bit tight by that point. But there was this incredible pull out to the horizon, out to the outermost point.
0: Now, you were doing this walk with a friend um, and I suppose you both realize that when tides go out in this area, they really go out. Um, you describe how there is this vast underwater territory on this walk called Doggerland mm. off the shore here. It stretches all the way east to Germany and was once dry land. Who lived there thousands oh. of years ago?
9: Well, amazingly, we do know stuff about this. Uh, in short, Mesolithic hunter-gatherers ranged across this area. This obviously is when the, the water that now fills this region that is the North Sea was largely locked up in land ice in the form of the ice caps. And using data from oil companies and astonishing archaeological reconstructive techniques that I don't really understand, archaeologists have been able to back map this area. And we now know what it probably looked like around 12 to 10,000 years ago. We know some of its features, its topography. We kind of know what people would have lived on. And uh, trawlers that fish this area regularly dredge up bones and hunting implements, this evidence of a lost civilization. So we were walking in that sense backwards in time, Mm. every step a decade.
0: So Robert, now you've walked the Broomway. Was it everything you hoped it would be?
9: Yeah, it was was unforgettable. And it, it changed my mind in the sense that it altered my mind. I felt profoundly flat in the sense of lateral rather than depressed for weeks after walking that. I will never forget it. And it's spent a very, very long time trying to
0: work out how to render that experience into prose. It's romantic, but uh, I've got to say, if any Americans hear this and they say, oh, I'll be <laughs> in England this summer, that walk sounds like fun and exhilarating. Uh, a <laughs> word of caution for them, perhaps? Well, first of all, make sure
9: the Ministry of Defense are not lobbing shells over the broomway, which is what they do most of the week. Mm.
0: Secondly, get your tide calculations right. And thirdly, pray that the moon stays in its orbit. Robert McFarlane writes about his walk on the Broomway in the current issue of Granta and in his forthcoming book, The Old Ways. Robert, thanks a lot. Thank you, Marco. We have some striking photos from Robert McFarlane's walk on the Broomway. You can see them at theworld.org, and
3: you don't even have to worry about getting caught by the tide. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Four little nuggets of news from around the country and the world
0: this week have caught the attention of our environment editor here at The World, Peter Thompson. The news items are datelined South Carolina, Seattle, Beijing, and Greenland. They're all over the map, but they're connected in a very significant way. Peter Thompson joins us now. What's that common denominator, Peter, and what do these stories all add up to?
7: Well, Marco, the thread that links all of these stories together is coal. The news from South Carolina is that one of the state's electric utilities yesterday announced that it will close two small coal-fired power plants as part of a shift toward relying more on natural gas and nuclear power to generate electricity. Uh, Now, by itself, this isn't such a big deal. These are small power plants. But what's important is what they represent. And that's the beginning of a shift in the U.S. away from using coal to generate electricity. Mm. Coal is under pressure here in the U.S. from a couple of directions, from federal pollution regulations, which are rising, and natural gas prices, which are falling. Coal plants are even in trouble in the heart of coal country places like Kentucky, where there was another significant announcement yesterday. That was that a utility there has decided not to update a big coal plant to meet new environmental standards, mm. which almost certainly means that the plant will shut down. And that is a big slap in the face to coal. Mm, I'll say.
0: So uh, in Seattle, what's going on there, and what does it have
7: to do with coal? Well, here's the thing, Marco. Coal use might be starting to fall off here in the U.S., but we still have the biggest reserves of the stuff in the world. So there's a big push to increase coal exports. Producers in Wyoming and Montana, they want to open up new rail routes to the West Coast, and their proposals to build six new export terminals to ship coal to Asia. But there's a lot of resistance to this. And on Tuesday, the Seattle City Council passed a resolution opposing coal exports. Mm. And this is a fight that's picking up a lot of steam in the region and that we'll be hearing more about here in the world in the coming months.
0: Now, story number three, you said, was out of Beijing.
7: Yeah, you might have seen reports this morning that China is taking steps to boost its economy. And of course, when you talk about boosting China's economy, you're talking about burning more coal. And that's bad news for the global environment because China is already the largest current emitter of carbon dioxide pollution, which, of course, is the leading cause of climate change.
0: I'm beginning to see a pattern here. So that brings us to your last news item, and that's Dateline Greenland.
7: Yeah, Greenland, uh, one of the places around the Arctic where recently sensors have just recorded a new and highly symbolic level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, 400 parts per million. Many climate scientists believe that the top level that will prevent serious climate disruption is 350 parts per million, but the trend is strongly in the other direction, and coal is perhaps the primary culprit. Mm. So what happens in China and the ports of the West Coast and South Carolina— will have a lot to do with whether that number keeps rising or eventually starts to fall.
0: The World's Environment editor, Peter Thompson, thanks very much for tying up all these four datelines for us. Thanks, Marco. There's going to be a big party in Britain this weekend. It's Queen Elizabeth's Diamond Jubilee, marking her 60 years on the throne. There hasn't been a jubilee party like this since 1977. That was the year of the Queen's Silver Jubilee. And the world's Patrick Cox joins me in the studio. Do you remember what you were doing in 77 during the Silver Jubilee? I do, Marco.
8: And I'm afraid to say I wasn't anywhere near any of the parties for the Jubilee. And it was very much by choice. Uh, A teenager like me just wouldn't be seen dead at a place like that. (laughs) Uh, But they had parties in towns and cities and villages. And they would give out memento mugs of the Silver Jubilee to every child in the country. I I believe
0: I may still have mine to this day. My mom picked mine up for me. Right. You didn't go to the party to get them. Now, this was a dark period for the UK. Remind us what was going on in 1977. Yeah,
8: it was a weird time to be growing up. I mean, there was a ton of strikes. Uh, There was a three-day work week for a while. There were blackouts. And there was the prospect of unemployment when you left school.
0: Yeah, you can kind of see how uh, the punk movement grew up in this
8: time. Yeah, the the No Future movement was uh, very much tailored for that. And that's what we were all doing, actually, when our parents were at the Silver Jubilee parties. Right.
0: You were probably listening to the song we're about to talk about, God Save the Queen, by the Sex Pistols.
8: That's right. Yeah, <laughs> this became an anthem almost overnight. This was a song that uh, had just been released around the time of the Silver Jubilee. And in fact, on this very day, May 31st, 1977, it was banned by the BBC. You couldn't hear it on the BBC or, in fact, on a lot of other radio stations. You couldn't buy the record in in a lot of major stores.
0: Why not? Why did the BBC ban God Save the Queen?
8: Well, listen to the lyrics. God Save the Queen, the fascist regime. And the BBC banned it for what it called gross bad taste. God
3: Save the Queen! The fascist regime!
0: And the rest of England, Patrick, I mean, the year of the Silver Jubilee, how was the the Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen, received generally? Those who liked it went out and bought it. They found a way to listen to it. They found a
8: way to buy it. And it shot up the charts. And there's this controversy that that rages on to this very day as to whether, in fact, during the week of the Jubilee, whether that song was the best-selling song of the week, whether it was the number one song. The BBC named it as the number two song, and there's just been skepticism about that ever since the number one song by the way was from Rod Stewart so, <laughs> which me and my friends found much more offensive than anything that we heard in a Sex Pistols song
0: I mean, this is obviously hardcore punk rock, two, three chords, you know, very simple, loud and in your face. But you could also look at this song as pure parody. I mean, what so upset the establishment by this music? I think they were frightened by it, with good reason. We were all frightened by
8: it. I Even think, the people
0: who liked it like you?
8: I think that, you know, as teenagers, you like to be frightened. And mm-hmm. it still sends shudders down my spine to this very day. It, was, it is a scary, terrifying piece of music.
0: Still a lot of fun to jump around and dance to.
8: Oh, wonderful. And, of course, the very fact that the establishment was so taken aback by this and and caught out was fantastic. It was the very first moment that teenagers up and down the land, that they felt some degree of power. Glenn Matlock, the the then Sex Pistols uh, bassist, he described this as the end of deference in Britain. Mm. Big moment,
0: then. For me, it was a huge moment. Now, I gather that there is a movement afoot to make God Save the Queen finally a number one single. How do the Sex Pistols feel about this?
8: Yeah, it's being re-released. The band doesn't seem to really care about it one way or the other, to their credit, but there's a Facebook movement to try and get enough people to buy it, so it finally takes that that number one spot that so many people feel that it was denied it uh, all of those years ago. It seems a little bit irrelevant now. While the song itself is just as magnificent and terrifying as it ever was, who cares
0: whether it's number one? Britain has moved on. Yeah, why should the Sex Pistols change their tune now and suddenly enter the mainstream? (laughs) (laughs) The world's Patrick Cox with his memories of the other Jubilee, that silver one in 1977, and of his personal soundtrack of that moment, the Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen. Patrick, thanks a lot. You're welcome, (laughs) Marco. You can see a video of the Sex Pistols performing God Save the Queen at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, the Freeman Foundation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International